Hey, this is Al Petrari from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and you're with my buddy John over at Iron City Rocks. See you guys soon. Hey, everybody, this is Gary Hoey, and you are hanging with my friend John on Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Ingve J. Malmsteen, and you are listening to Iron City Rocks. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. Episode 77 is going to be jam-packed with a bunch of shows coming to town and a very special guest at the end. So I'm not going to waste a lot of time talking, but I do want to give you a little bit of information on some shows that are coming into the Pittsburgh area very soon. On Sunday, November 28th, Iron City Rocks presents Chimera with special guest Impending Doom, Doth, this or the Apocalypse and Hollow Point at Mr. Small. So you check that out. You can get more information at opus1productions.com. And recently announced the Murder Dolls will be coming in with special guest vampires everywhere and get scared. Uh, they will be playing at the Altar Bar. Uh, for those not familiar with the name of the Murder Dolls, it is made up of Slipknot's Joey Jordanson and Wednesday 13 on vocals. And then Iron City Rocks presents on. December 17th, Metallica, which is a band we featured on the show, uh, I believe, late last year, which is a band that does a smash-up of the Beatles and Metallica. They'll be performing also at Altar Bar with Face Down Presley and Chip Dimonic, which has been on the show several times. So you can get more information on both Murder Dolls and Metallica at TruskyEntertainment.com. So without further ado, let's get into this week's show. This week's show is going to be featuring two shows coming to the Pittsburgh area. The first is the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, which will be coming to the Console Energy Center on November 21st, doing two shows. You can get more information on that at Ticketmaster.com. We had a chance to speak with Chris Caffery, a legendary guitarist of the band Sabotage and founding member of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra as well. So we're going to play a song from the last album from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. This is a song called Father, Son, Holy Ghost. And then we're going to get into the interview with Chris. You were the dream that survived Lost in the darkness of eternity You were the hope kept alive Embraced by tomorrow that we all could never quite see You had a beauty denied You were the moment But here in this night Where your dream carries on Never quite there But it's never quite gone Star that is wished upon forever. You were the one that believed long past when belief was a memory, the child time would never. 
seed Faith and tomorrow And all of the things that might be You had a beauty denied A glittering moment But here in this night your dream carries on Never quite there But it's never quite gone You are the star That is wished upon Forever Hey! 
Trans-Siberian Orchestra and from Sabotage, Chris Caffrey. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Very good. I wanted to um, get in touch with you guys. We had talked to Al Petrelli prior to the um, spring tour about the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, but I wanted to get in touch with kind of the man, um, the the focal point of, I would say, the East Coast tour uh, about the holiday tour this year and just find out what's going on and things like that. But before we do that, can you just kind of give us a little background on you musically? I know you know, prior, specifically prior to sabotage. Kind of well, actually, it's, it's kind of it's kind of funny because I didn't really have a lot of time to have a musical history prior to sabotage. I mean, I I started playing guitar at about eleven years old. By the time I was fourteen, I was playing out in in clubs with my brother in a band that we had, which is called Anti, which is A N T I. It was kind of a little rebellious name at the time. And you know, I was teaching guitar. I graduated high school and was teaching guitar and playing music sixteen at the age of sixteen full time. And then when I was seventeen years old, it was funny because I don't want to, I don't want to preach this to anybody. But New York State, my brother was. 19 i was 17 and they changed the drinking age in new york from 19 to 21 and if you were 19 you were able to still get into the bar so i had my brother's id and social security card and and i was at 17 years old i was able to get into the new york city nightclub so i was hanging out in in new york city and i'd actually met the singer of the band called heaven at a club in times square and he was looking for a guitar player and i gave him a tape and he called me up and told me to come in and, and meet him and his and his manager. And his manager happened to be Paul O'Neill. And this is when I was 17 years old. So I, I did some recordings and some touring with the band Heaven. But they uh, it kind of disbanded. And Paul was producing all of the Mountain King and came to me and asked me if I wanted to go on the road to be their their additional guitar player during their tour that they were doing opening for Ronnie Dio and, and Megadeth. And... Oh. And that pretty much happened by the time I was 19 years old. So everything kind of happened quickly. I mean, my background before that, you know, there was a short period of time that had left Sabotage to try to put things back together with my brother because there was never really closure with that situation. But that really didn't didn't work. So there was like two or three years where I was out of the Sabotage band, but I wasn't really away from that when I was working with John on a record that we did that was called Dr. Butcher at the time, which, uh, it was, it was a really, it was a fun metal record, but you know, my, my home and my heart and soul was always, you know, back where the sabotage thing was on that music. And, and unfortunately the last couple of years that Chris Oliva was alive were the years that I was away. And, and when he passed me and John, you know, we, we'd gotten back, you know, into the band as a, again together as John was out after streets. And, you know, it was, uh, it's a learning experience. You know, you, you did 20, 21 years old. You think you have everything figured out and you're really, you know, I realized that where I wanted to be is where I already was. So I was lucky yeah. to get back into, into the band and, and, you know, everything just went along the timeline from there, you know, with the development of, of, uh, 
where things are now. I mean, I'm just I'm just happy that my my career, my life wound up being that way, you know. And, and like I said, it all it all turned and, and came from the the initial working that I did with Paul. I mean, that's that's uh, the thing. If I never if I never went and <laughs> like I said, I wasn't trying to promote it, but the fake ID. If I never went and did any of that stuff, I mean, who knows what I'd be doing right now? But I was I was lucky enough to get involved with someone like Paul that was going to make some very special things happen for, for my life and everybody else around me with, with, with TSO and Sabotage and everything else that we've done. Now, when you met up with Paul, I mean, obviously, Sabotage, in my opinion, is kind of a, a sort of a pioneer in what might be called power metal now. I guess it didn't really have a label back then. I mean, but it was certainly unique what, what they were doing. I mean, you, you mentioned Dio, which is probably a good parallel, but, I mean, what did, I mean, as a kid, you know, you weren't much older than I was at the time, that you you know, what they yeah. were doing was kind of unique. Was that kind of intimidating? Um, you know, I I just really got along with the band so well as friends, so there was never really any kind of intimidation factor going on. You know, I I loved working with Chris. He was such a great guitar player. I mean, I I was playing, you know, rhythm at the time, and I I was learning so much off of him. And I think the the, I think all of us in the band, because the band still was was pretty young too. I mean, Chris wasn't that much older than me, and and you know, I think when we did Gutter Ballet, John had, had just turned thirty at the time when that that record was was out, and you know he was the oldest member in the band, so the band wasn't tremendously old. There was there was a a real serious energy about that band at the time, and the music that was being made. I think the thing that that was very pioneering about Sabotage. I mean, it, it definitely was one of the first, you know, progressive metal bands, and we were really the one of the first metal bands to incorporate, you know, a full story into a, you know a rock opera into an album. I know there's a tremendous amount of bands in Europe that have done exactly just that, and if you speak to them, and it's really it's kind of cool. I mean, a lot of these bands that my influences were sabotaged, influences were sabotaged. They like John Oliva, Chris Oliva. And I know for sure that, um, one thing that, that we did do was, I think the, the marriage between the piano and the strings with the heavy metal, I think that was something that was really just kind of exclusively came out of the band because John's love for the Beatles and, and Queen got into the writing then when paul heard you know john just thumbing around on the uh the, there was a piano at the record plant studios where john lennon had recorded imagine and john was just playing and and paul heard this side of john olivas he got to know john better as a person and a musician it was just one of these things where paul started writing with john and that whole you know, the the real deep, meaningful side of the sabotage lyrics and, the, and what is now, you know, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra stories. And because I think that's the thing that really connects this band with the fans is the stories and the lyrics, because there's so much real life emotion in that. And I think that emotion really was dragged out through the, um, the acoustic guitar and piano songs that Paul and John were writing. I mean that they really started to 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 develop that whole connection between people. I mean it's hard to hard to make a an emotional connection between somebody in a in a really heavy heavy metal song like you know Beyond the Doors of the Dark. I mean which was to me one of the greatest heavy metal songs ever written. But when you you know when you turn around and and you have a song like When the Crowds Are Gone, 
and summer's rain and then believe and and New York City don't mean nothing and and all these things. It's just, there was real life emotions. I think that Sabotage was putting into the music at, at at that time when most of the lyrics were about drugs and cars and dragons and and you know kill 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 here comes this band you know saying believe and and you know i think it was definitely what set us apart from everybody else yeah along with along with the music like i said the music and the the orchestrations and things that we were doing that you know not a lot of metal bands at all had even heard at that time yeah i mean aside from maybe dream theater i can't think of too many bands that really incorporated you know, that kind of the keyboard is even into the metal at that time. You guys were certainly unique yep. that, especially in that era of the early 90s. Now, how did um, the TSO kind of morph out of Sabotage? And is there still is there still a distinction in your mind? Well, I mean, TSO has always been something that Paul has wanted to do. I mean, it's TSO... It, it's funny that you say that TSO didn't necessarily morph out of Sabotage. TSO was... An idea. I mean, TSO started, uh, and even a lot of some of the music that we're recording now was music that Paul had with his band called Slowburn that he was playing guitar in. And this was this was ten years before he was even working with Sabotage. And Paul just had a really he was like me. And when I was writing songs, my band, my brother, my biggest problem was we could never find a singer because if you like great metal music and hard rock music, you always are, you go for that, you know, David Coverdale, Freddie Mercury, that that large range in the voice, and it was difficult to find. And Paul had had this problem with Slow Burn. He couldn't, he couldn't find that singer. So he, you know, he was writing and he got asked to produce. And, and as he got involved with Sabotage, I mean, some of, you know, some of his ideas that he never had a chance to use, like Christmas Eve 1224, were, were used in the band. And he started working with John Oliva on, in 1992, actually writing what is going to be the first, the, the first TSO record ever written was this record called Romanoff, When Kings Must Whisper, which John had started writing with Paul in 92. And it was going to go to, to Broadway, but he just got so busy with Sabotage and the, uh, eventual live inception of the TSO thing. It didn't have a chance to happen, but now the first TSO record's being recorded for real, like sec- sixth or whatever we're at, sixth or seventh. It's, it's kind of odd, odd the way that happened. I mean, you know, the uh, Sabotage song went up on the Christmas Eve record, but Paul's original plan was to have, you know, the, the Christmas trilogy and then have the, the rock trilogy and then start bringing some of this stuff to life as, as rock musicals. And it's just, you know, it's all happening in in, in a specific timeline that, that uh, you know, you couldn't have predicted it because it kind of flip-flopped and, and, and went in a weird way. But, um, you know, the, the, the sabotage writing core with John and Paul, that was, of course, very important to it. But, you know, I, I always remember Paul telling me that he wanted to have a band that had, you know, absolutely no limits. And that would be, you know, whether you would have the softest moment, whether it just be a flute or the heaviest song he could possibly do. And he wanted to use the different singers because, you know, as, as time goes on, how many nights can you go and, 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 and sing Highwood Al in a row. I mean, it's yeah. really difficult on the singer to do six nights a week 
an hour and a half, two hours a show. I mean, with TSO, you, you have the, you know, you have the luxury of being able to, to, you know, lean on the, of course, it's tiring for us in the band because we're, you know, we're, we're busting our butts on, on stage, but it's, it's awesome because you get, you get a chance to really hear the singers that, you know, that they, they come out and they, they sing their, a couple songs and they're really focusing on that song. And when you hear them, you're hearing what you, what you heard in the studio, you know, if not better live, because it's, that's, they're not being destroyed on the yeah. road, which happens to the barely any singers. I mean, Ronnie Dio is probably one of the few that I heard that was able to go out there every night and just be that guy. It's yeah. difficult. So, you know, TSO definitely can develop something special. Yeah, and plus you've got, I mean, you've got quite a range of, say, colors almost. I mean, you've got Jeff Scott Soto's voice and something like that, and then you can flip into a completely different gear with, let's say, Tim Hockenberry and his singing Believe, where, you know, there's probably not too many mortals who can do all of that range of work, you know, outside of, yeah. you, know, you mentioned Ronnie Dio, which is kind of... Or John Oliva. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's very few, very few people alive that do that type of work now. One of, the, yeah. one of the, the things with the TSO, you know, especially looking at the, the host of people involved in the Night Castle project, is logistically, I mean, how does this kind of get put together then? I mean, obviously, uh, Paul is involved, and, and yourself, and Al Petrelli, and things like that, but I mean, do you kind of have like a core writing group, and then just bring people in based on who you think will work the parts out the best? Or? Yeah, well, I mean, Paul really is very meticulous in the studio and he will record songs with different singers to hear you know he of course when you you write something you you go have a person in mind you know and that's just once you work with people it's like you get to know them as a person if you're writing a song you're like oh my god this song would be perfect for jennifer cello or whatever the case of me maybe in the studio but i mean he does listen to different people singing different songs because you you know you never know exactly which person's going to grab a song and bring that specific magic that you're looking for and you know Paul hears the the way somebody is singing the the lyrics and the message and and what the song means and you know he he wants to get the person that could sing it the best but he also wants to get the person that makes him believe what it is that he wrote the most and that's that's where you know his brilliance as a producer comes in because he's able to bring that out of people where you know i'll sit there and listen to somebody sing a line and then paul will explain it to them in the studio and 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 the 20 minutes he'll be spent talking about one particular sentence in the song and why the sentence is there and why you should sing it this way and then the person you know you, you roll the music again and the person sings the line and all of a sudden you hear the line in a completely different way and that's, you know, that's what a producer does, a real producer, a real artist, because I worked with some producers and some other bands in the, um, in the late eighties, early nineties, just, you know, in my off times with the sabotage thing, they were, you know, these guys were just doing formulas. They weren't, they weren't looking for what's the best song. They were, they were trying to just, you know, we need this song that's going to have this gang vocal here that's going to sound like this with this particular, you know, overwash snare drum, and we're going to make this, we're going to hand this into the record company because they say we need this. Yeah. You know, that's not how this thing operates. I mean, Paul spent a year in the studio working on a record because he wants to get 
what TSO wants to get, not what the music industry or, or what anybody says we should do. I mean, we we don't really go by any any rules at all. If we did, I mean, if we had, if we had to, we we wouldn't have been successful with our formula because it really doesn't have any rules. So it's um it's definitely an experience if you ever had a chance to see Paul work in the studio because it's it's very it's very intense and I mean it's very creative and it's it's also very fun at the same time. So which is great. Now you're um you put out a solo album last year, House of Insanity. Do you want to just give us a little bit of background on what what to expect with that album for those not familiar? Yeah, I had a, I actually put out a couple solo records because then once TSO got busy or Sabotage got less busy and we weren't TSO wasn't playing all year long at the time and I wasn't in the studio with them all year long, but I really had no desire to go and join another band. I mean, I was getting lots of phone calls, people going, Chris, can you do this? Chris, can you do that? And I did a couple tours and things that I was able to fit in, but I never wanted to stand there next to, you know, three or four other guys and be like, this is this band and I'm Chris Caffrey and I'm in this band. It's like, I... Chris Caffrey and I'm in Sabotage and I'm in the Trans-Siberian Orchestra and that's where I want to be and I don't want to be in any other band. So I would turn down these offers but I was still writing music and eventually just because you know I had some melodies in my head and I bought Pro Tools I started to play around and started singing and you know I got a kind of a decent cool sort of a rasp to my voice and I started finishing songs and I liked it and I got myself a deal and I I've done four solo albums and they're fun. I mean, it's it's draining because I did a lot of the work myself, which is why that record was called House of Insanity because I recorded it in my home studio by myself. I wrote it, I engineered it, I mixed it. I even, you know, it's funny. I took one of the photos on the inside of it of myself. You know, it was kind of one of these things. And and the House of Insanity really was my was just me. You know, because when you're you're working by yourself that much, I was talking to the walls, talking to myself, and just the title the title kind of came out. I mean, it does have lots of different meanings because, you know, if you look at, at you know, a particular different house that kind of runs this country, that there, there's a little bit of insanity going on there. And then, you know, and then, of course, you have your traditional insane asylum. And then the fact that, you know, like I said, I was home. And then sometimes if you get around that situation for too long you just go stir crazy but it, it was it was a cool record i had a, i had a lot of fun doing that one i'm gonna i think my next record i'm gonna do might lean on being half of the singing and maybe half of a guitar instrumental album like people always been asking me they want me here to do a guitar record and i mean of course me a guitar player i go to do a solo record and i'm singing so <laughs> Goes against that goes against that whole yeah. You know, there's the formula again. Let me go out. Okay, do a solo record, and then there's you know it's just a regular rock album. But you know that that if I get some time after the next spring tour because we're going out again, they're going to Europe the first time. I might you know get back into my studio and record it again. And I think I'm gonna have some of my friends play with me on a lot of the other stuff because I don't really want to do it all myself, and my ears will be road fried from from touring so much so I'm gonna have somebody help me with the, the mixing and engineering but Yeah, it'd be good to bounce something off your of somebody other than yourself. That's yeah, a little exactly. Now um hardware wise, you um you have I, I remember seeing you guys last uh winter and you were playing a very impressive looking Dean Strat style guitar with the Night Castle. Um but as far as guitars you seem to have quite a plethora of them. I mean just 
is Dean kind of the main one, or do you have kind of like a number one in your arsenal? Well, I mean, my Nightcastle guitar is probably one of my favorite ones to play live, and Dean's made me some really cool custom guitars. Um, I do still always have a fondness for my old Gibsons. I was just something about them. They just have a sound and a thing about them. You know, it's like I love playing them on stage, and it's something that really captures the TSO sound in those guitars. We use them in the studio. We use them on Sabotage Records. You know, we did, we used the Jacksons and things like that in the studio. It's like me, I kind of, you know, I I just play the guitar I think fits the song I'm doing. I could do the whole show with one guitar. That's, you know, I could do that, but I think there's a lot of kids and people, they like to be entertained when they go out there and they like to see these things. And they like to, I like to show them some of the stuff that I have. So I take out... I take out different guitars on different tours, you know, based on different songs. You know, I didn't take my Wizard Dean guitar out in the spring tour because I really only play that song when we're doing Wizards in Winter. And, and if we're doing the 12, 12 if we're doing the uh, Christmas Eve and other stories part of the winter show, I don't play the Nightcastle guitar in that because I don't think it fits it. I don't use guitars with graphics and ones that are really... Uh, eye grabbing when the vocalist is singing because I, I like to let people focus on the lyrics when they're when they're singing. So it's like a certain certain guitars I think have a different spirit for different songs, and it's yeah. it's kind of fun to mix and match them. And I do have a ton. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people have seen that I had a uh, I think it's really Gibson Les Paul, one of the custom ones I made, and it was a gift to me for a couple years ago on my birthday, and, and somebody had stolen it from me recently and that was kind of that was really sad because I, I didn't use that on stage with with TSO because it was you know somebody else's guitar I'm going to use a Chris Caffrey guitar on stage on Ace really guitar you know, I love Ace it was one of the reasons why I started playing guitar was because I was a huge Kiss fan along with like Black Sabbath and, and Beatles and, and, and stuff like that when I was a kid but you know to have that guitar I just really it was really special to me because that was one of the things I used to stare at as a kid and I used to draw it in kindergarten, you know, on, on a, it was that particular guitar and then I have it and somebody, had, you know, really kind of crushed me by going and stealing it from me and, and you know, that one was, uh, it was, it, it, it was really, yeah, it's, you know, I guess some people, it feels good by making somebody else, you know, taking somebody else's thing, it's like whatever, but, yeah, I I I'd actually seen that you posted on that line actually this morning, if I'm not mistaken, and I'd seen that. And you know, I'm right there with you. When I was a kid, and he used to have like uh, he cut the pictures out of the Sears catalog and then draw the members of Kiss, yep. and you know, he had the one that looked like Ace, and yeah, you'd give your left arm for that guitar, and that is a shame. So, do you have yep. any idea, roughly geographic, where that guitar disappeared? So I think it's I think it's in the in the New York State area, somewhere within 90 miles of New York City. I was a, a gambling person. I'd bet it's there, and I, I'd really kind of figure whoever have it is probably, you know, they're, they're going to realize that you know you can't you can't do anything with it. Nope. You know, it's it, it's not a black guitar. You know, it's got a fingerprint on the front of it. It's wood is its fingerprint. It's a it's a wood grain guitar. I mean, there's only one guitar that looks like that one, and you can't play it in public because you don't even need to match the serial number to match guitar. It's ID just off the face of it. So this person can't even hack, take it out of their house. You can't sell it. You can't do anything with it. So it's like, you know, I, I don't understand why somebody would, would just, you know, I guess it is what it is. But 
people want a memento, come up and ask for an autograph, you know. Yeah. Play your guitar. Well, anyway, Chris, I, I appreciate that, and I'm certainly we'll, we'll all keep an eye out for that, and hopefully we can get the word out, and that'll shame somebody into turning the thing in. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm hoping. I think eventually, I'm, I'm hoping that the uh, just the whole pressure of, of what actually been done, and, and I can just get the guitar back, you know, because yeah, it was awesome. So whoever has it can kind of think of the Edgar Allan Poe story, the Telltale Heart, and you can hear that guitar kind of ticking, and you know maybe the guilt will get to them. Yeah. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show again. You guys will be coming into Pittsburgh on the 21st, doing two shows at the new Console Energy Arena. Uh, yeah, we're looking forward, forward to, to that. Actually, we uh, we you know we like playing the Mellon, and it definitely was a, a unique building. But um, you know, we've we've heard nothing but great things about the new place, and we you know I love Pittsburgh. It's one of my favorite cities in America, so I'm looking forward to uh, to getting back there and playing the new building. Yeah, I think you'll really enjoy it. It's it's a lot easier, at least for a fan, to get around in. So I'm sure you'll enjoy it. All right, man. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. John, thanks a lot. Bye.
We're going to do a brand new one. It's called The Light. Ready? Trapped with nowhere to hide. Walls are closing in. 
All right, that was Tobacco Road with the light, the live recording. Before that, you heard the remedy called Want to Travel in Man. Uh, which brings me to the next topic. I want to talk about Iron City Rocks. Is, is uh, created a new music award. It's called the Pittsburgh Rock Music Awards uh, for 2010. And if you go to ironcityrocks.com, we are taking currently nominations for a whole host of uh, categories, including best band, alternative band, metal band, as well as individual musician categories for best guitarist, drummer, keyboard, etc. And the first ever Iron City Rocks Hall of Fame inductee. So I invite you to go to ironcityrocks.com. Uh, in the middle of the screen, a giant uh, logo with a link for the nominations. The nominations close November 30th. On December 1st, we will take the highest nominated bands and musicians, and they will become finalists for the award, and the voting will begin in December. So check that out. Now, the two bands you just heard, The Remedy and Tobacco Road, will be on the bill on November 27th at the Alter Bar opening for Gary Hoey. Gary Hoey is a name that you may have heard in the past. He uh, has done several Christmas-related guitar instrumentals. He's done shows for WDVE here in Pittsburgh. Uh, had a uh, pretty big uh, hit with a cover of Hocus Pocus, a song from the old band called Focus, oddly enough. So uh, Gary's got a new album out called Utopia, but he will be bringing his rockin' Christmas show to Pittsburgh. So before we get into an interview with Mr. Gary Hoey, a absolute gentleman and a great guy to talk to, wanted to play a song from the Ho Ho Hoey uh, collection of CDs. I actually personally own the uh, complete Ho Ho Hoey, which is a two-disc I can't recommend enough. This is one of the greatest Christmas songs I think I've ever heard. This is called You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch from Gary Hoey. <laughs> Oh, 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 
ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to the show Gary Hoey. How are you doing today, Gary? Doing great. How are you, buddy? I'm doing really, really good. Hey, I wanted to uh, get in touch with you. Your um, holiday uh, Christmas concert is going to be rolling into Pittsburgh on November 27th at the Altar Bar. And I uh, wanted to catch up with you, learn a little bit more about uh, your background and what we can expect from the show. Great. Um, you, you're from the, the Boston area, am I correct? Yes. You want to just give us a little bit about like what influenced the player you became like growing up? Yep, as far as you mean, what did Boston, how did Boston affect it, you mean? Well, I mean, that and what kind of musical influences do you have? Uh, well, my influences are kind of all over the place. I mean, I grew up, you know, playing a lot of stuff around Boston and the club scene, and there was pretty diverse uh, musical scene. So I, I grew up on, you know, just a lot of blues and, and hard rock. Um, some of my earlier influences were like, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, B.B. Uh, King, and on the, you know, the rock side, probably Black Sabbath was one of my biggest influences when I was real young. Um, I used to listen to them a lot, and, um, you know, I was really hungry to learn a lot of different musical things, so I studied, I studied a little bit of jazz, and I studied blues, and I, you know, I uh, used to hang around Berklee College of Music, and there's a, a story about, you know, me wanting to go to Berkeley, and my parents didn't have the money, so they said, go hang out there, you might learn something, so I... I down and hung out at Berkeley, and I ended up, you know, getting a guy to teach me uh, for like 10 bucks an hour on Saturdays how to learn how to read music and everything. So I kind of got a, you know, backdoor education at uh, at the Berkeley College of Music. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, I got that on the cheap. Now, now growing up in, in Boston in that time, how, how heavy was the influence of Aerosmith? I mean, is that kind of unescapable? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Aerosmith was certainly... Um, you know, uh, a band that was uh, definitely influential. Uh, Boston, The Cars, Jay Giles, James Montgomery. Um, you know, you know, obviously the band Boston. And uh, we used to rehearse in a music complex in Cambridge, and literally in the same building there was Aerosmith, Extreme, Boston, The Cars. I mean, I used to walk down the halls and see Steven Tyler, Joe Perry walking around. I mean, it was it was an amazing thing. And this was in the late seventies. Wow, so you had a lot of platinum in one building there. Um, yeah. You kind of you kind of got your started with a band called Heavy Bones. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah. Heavy Bones was uh, a band that we had done one album for Warner Brothers uh, Records with uh, Frankie Benali from Quiet Riot was playing drums with us. It was uh, during a period when Quiet Riot wasn't together, so he was playing drums and we had a lead singer and uh, we made one record and it just you know it didn't take off because of the whole grunge thing. It kind of got it got lost in the shuffle with the whole grunge movement, so we uh, the band disbanded. And then I did my solo album, which uh, ended up, you know, having the hit Hocus Pocus. Now, how big of a leap of faith? I mean, that had to be kind of a huge decision to, to you know, roll the dice on instrumental rock music at that period of time. I mean, did you consider doing other bands, or was this something you felt was kind of calling you to try to do, or was this something in between projects that just did better than you expected it would? I, I kind of, I think, yeah, kind of that. I mean, we, I grew up, you know, loving instrumental music. I used to love Jeff Beck and, you know, just listening to instrumental music. So I, I was a fan of it. And, uh, but I always wanted to be in a vocal band. That was always my dream. So what happened was when Heavy Bones was kind of, when the album started to tank, I said, well, maybe I'll do a little solo record just on the side. And I didn't really expect it to have a hit. Um, so that was sort of, you know, I was doing it really just for fun. 
and uh, we ended up having a hit. It was just kind of a fluke, man. We we didn't really expect uh, to happen. You know what happened? Sure. And then, what kind of what kind of led you to to the idea of doing a Christmas album? Because I mean, a lot of people now, I think, you know, especially with your name having the word, you know, the phrase "ho" in it, and then the line of "ho ho hoey" albums, you become somewhat synonymous with Christmas albums in a way. Yes. What what led you to that decision? Well, I think it was, again, it was, uh, you know, kind of a happy accident. I, um, I was talking to my manager, and he said, you know, it'd be cool if you recorded some Christmas songs on guitar, and, you know, we could send them out to radio DJs, kind of for bumper music and things like that. And we, you know, he said, well, what do you want to call the album? And I said, well, my last name's Hoey. I always find my Christmas cards, Ho, Ho, Hoey. And, uh, so, and he's like, that's great. That's perfect. So we ended up calling it Ho, Ho, Hoey. And the first album I recorded in my bedroom on an 8-track. That's all I had was an 8-track. And we did uh, the 12 Days of Christmas. And I tried to, you know, really add like a rock edge to it. Still retain the melody. Still have respect for the melody, but add some other riffs in there. And I think when it hit the airwaves, people kind of went, wow, this is something different. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of rock bands that were doing like entire albums of Christmas music. It was mainly like one song or a single. So I think I was kind of starting... Um, you know, at, on a on a new path, and uh, and then tra- you know, Trans Siberian Orchestra came out, and they kind of, you know, became really huge. And I think it, it's um, it's all kind of fed what I'm doing. And I think that the the thing I love about Christmas music is, you know, I get to do a lot of fundraisers every year. I do a lot of charity work and help out kids and things like that. So it it, it makes it even more fun for me. Yeah, and I think one of the things that always has stood out with with your Christmas albums is your ability to kind of capture the melody of the songs so that you don't have to be, you know, someone who appreciates shred music, for example, to find your songs very listenable, which is, is, I think, a huge feather in your cap. You know, a lot of people can kind of, you know, go off on the Phrygian mode and play the heck out of a song, but at the end of the day, you lose non-guitar players, and your album, I think, captures that audience very, very well. Thanks, man. Yeah, we're getting a lot of uh, a lot of crossover, man. We we have grandmothers that are fans now. It's really fun. Yeah, that's that, uh, even you know I I know just from seeing the Trans Siberian Orchestra, you go and you're essentially seeing a large part of what is sabotage, and you go and there's fifty, sixty year old women and their husbands, and you know, this is kind of a mind boggling when you think of what sabotage came from as well. So yeah, it's that's certainly right. a crossover. Yeah. Now, yeah. You, you just put out a new album, and I wanted to talk a little bit about Utopia. Um, you want to give us a little background on the writing process and, and what kind of material? Yeah, absolutely. Utopia uh, was definitely a long time coming. It took me over two years to make it uh, because we, we were starting a new record label, my own label, Wazoo uh, Music Group. And this album is a continuation of me kind of going more into singing, uh, you know, singing vocals. It's, it's predominantly a vocal album. Um, but, you know, no shortage of uh, crazy guitars and stuff. So we kept the guitars real strong. And uh, I've been really wanting to uh, develop my voice because I grew up singing in bands for many years. Um, and we just posted a song called Reminds Me of You on YouTube, which has been getting an awesome response. Um, and another song called Walk Away we're just finishing. We shot a video for yesterday, so we're finishing another video. And, uh you know, this new album, I think, is going to broaden my fan base a lot. And, you know, I think it's going to be um, a step for me to keep moving in the direction of vocals. And, and not that I'm abandoning instrumental. There are three instrumentals on the album. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think this is definitely going to help me uh, expand my audience. 
Excellent. Now you mentioned uh, Wazoo Music. Um, are there other acts on that al- on your label, or is this just kind of getting taking the, the major labels chunk of your money and keeping it in your pocket? Um, you know what? I think so. I mean, I think the record business now is is in such a crazy place that you know bands don't need record companies the way they used to. And you know, I'm thankful for all the deals I've had, but I think right now. Um, you know, this album for me, Wazoo Music Group is really a label for myself. I will probably be signing other artists as time goes on, but right now we're focusing on, on my thing. And But we are working with a couple of the artists in development and production, but I'm not certain that I'm going to actually be the one releasing the projects. But we are uh, recording some young talent and some different bands in my studio, and I'm helping them uh, with their production. Now, did you did you produce um, Utopia, or was it? Did you work with an outside producer? Uh, I did produce it. Yeah, I self-produced it, and uh, I have an associate producer, uh, Urban Olson, who was the guy also that mixed the album, and he he kind of played the producer, you know, the co-producer kind of guy, associate producer. He was there as somebody I could lean on and bounce, you know, bounce things off of, you know. Yeah, you need that guy to have a reality check sometimes. Yep, you do. Uh, you need to go. Hey, man, come back a little. <laughs> Oh, was Wazoo Music, was that kind of a, a tip of the cap of, to Frank Zappa name-wise, or does that have some other relevance? Uh, you know what? I When I came up with the name Wazoo uh, Music Group, I was kind of, uh, you know, looking for a name for my label. And, uh, you know, it was it was there was a couple things in, in, in the thinking of Wazoo. One is I thought, you know, anybody could pronounce it probably anywhere in the world. You know, if, it doesn't matter what nationality you are. Anybody can say Wazoo. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I also thought it was kind of funny because I'm, I write so much music, sometimes I feel like it's coming out of the wazoo. <laughs> uh, so I, it just was sort of a funny, I just love the way the word sounded. So I was like, you know, wazoo, that could be cool. And I never thought it would be available when I went to, you know, get the trademark. I was like, oh, my God, someone's got to have wazoo. And uh, sure enough, I got it. Yeah, I'm surprised Gene Simmons didn't scarf that up before you had thought about it. Yep. <laughs> now, um, as far as is your live show, um, you're, you're touring as a three-piece? Yep, we are. We're a three-piece. Now, um, does that present, and I know just listening to some of the albums, a lot of them have a bed of guitar in which you, you're kind of soloing the melodies over top of. How do you accomplish that live, and does the bass kind of pick up the slack? Well, I think live, what, what I, the way I look at the live situation is when you record in the studio, in my opinion, you want to you know utilize the... the the technology and the resources that are there to make the album like an oral journey, like a really cool experience for people in their homes and whether they're listening to it on their iPods. So I do do a lot of overdubs and I do a lot of uh, production tricks and stuff. But what I do live is I play the most important guitar parts and that's what people focus on. And it's really amazing how much people don't really even, you know, notice or care that there's not, like you know, tons of overdubs live because I think if you pay, play the most important part and you put on a great show. See, I think live, it's more about a performance and a show than it is trying to sound exactly like the record. I mean, we sound very close to the record, but I think, you know, it's a different animal. And rather than going in the studio and saying, well, I'm not going to do too many overdubs because I can't do it live, I just look at it as, hey, man, when you listen to the album, it's a very different experience than what we are live. Certainly, yeah. I mean, that's your, you're building one to be listened to you know, like you mentioned, on an iPod and live. You know, I think a lot of people kind of zero in on one thing to listen to, even when they're listening to the album. So you bring up a very, very good point. 
Yeah. You're going to you're going to be um kicking off your tour on the 26th in Detroit and then making your way down to Pittsburgh the next night and then you've got a pretty extensive run all the way darn near up to Christmas then, correct? Yes, we are we're playing we're playing right up until I think we just booked something on the 21st uh and the 22nd. So we'll we'll be home for Christmas Eve. Yeah, so so you're going to be doing your Christmas shopping the next week or so and then packing it all in and getting on the road. Well, that's great. Gary, I want to thank you uh, again for taking the time out of your day to give us a call. My pleasure.
to something big at the end, and I will admit this has nothing to do with Pittsburgh. So if you're only interested in the show for Pittsburgh music, now would be the time to turn it off and join us next time. But what I have for you now is a special interview I did with Ingve J. Malmsteen. And if you've ever played guitar, you know the name Ingve J. Malmsteen. He's got a new album called Relentless coming out on November 22nd on his own record label. So you can find that at... Uh, that's on Rising Force Records. You can find that at Amazon.com. The song you just heard was called Damnation Game, which is from Perpetual Flame, which is his previous album that he did with Tim the Ripper Owens. So wanted to give you a taste of what you can expect on the next album. I've had a chance to hear it myself, and it is equally as phenomenal. So without further ado, we're going to get into an interview with Ingve J. Malmsteen. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an absolute honor to welcome to the show Ingve Malmsteen. How are you doing today, Ingve? Great, thank you. Hey, I wanted to just get in touch with you. You've got a new CD uh, about to hit the stores, and I wanted to get in touch with you and kind of catch up with uh, what has been a, kind of a, a huge output of material that uh, you've had over the last two years, um, starting back with uh, your collaboration with Tim Owens. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you and the Ripper kind of got together? Yeah, well, you know, we we um, known each other for a long time, known all each other, definitely, but also, we did a couple of things, I don't know, almost 10 years ago. And um, what happened was I was writing all the songs for the Perpetual Flame album, which was like 07, and it was mm-hmm. released in 08. I, I re- I've written all the songs. I write all the lyrics and everything. And the thing I had at the time, I did a couple of uh, tracks with him, and then I, I just didn't like the way it came out. So I knew I had to get someone who would be able to deliver the stuff that i written, you know? Sure. So, um we get hold of Tim and I said, Hey, come down to Miami and sing some songs, have a studio, you know, so we did. And it sounded amazing. So we did it, you know? Excellent. Yeah. And basically the way, the way I do, the way I write, I write all the parts and I write the lyrics and melodies and stuff like this. And, uh, you know, I have a certain thing in my, in my mind, what I want to hear. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he just, he delivers perfectly what I'm you know going for. So he's great. Yeah. Yeah, no sort of experience with Tim, a phenomenal voice uh, on him. Now, you, um, somewhere in that period of time, also started your own uh, record label, Rising Force Records. Um, do you want to talk about, a little bit about what was the impetus to do that? Well, I'm sure everybody knows that the music industry is basically, it hasn't changed. It's completely transformed into something else. It's not the same thing as it was three years ago, you know. Sure. And, um I mean, this this results in a lot of different things. Um, the labels don't do what labels used to do, you know. And uh, as you might realize, that it's not. That, I mean, the metal thing is really up and up, but it's mostly the, the bands already established that are becoming very popular, you know. Yeah. So it, to make long story long, what, what I decided to do, along with my wife, who is my manager also, uh, she's the business person. <laughs> yeah. Um, to form our own label and have worldwide distribution because the labels that we were dealing with, they were just horrible, a bunch of crooks, basically. Sure. And so it's a very, very good thing because of, uh, of the fact that you can release whatever you want, whenever you want. So uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, as a fan, one of the things that I absolutely love is the fact that you've been able to, um, you know, you've turned out, what, four albums in two years now and and several DVDs that were, you know, impossible to get, uh, which has been great. You know, like I said, it's it's been nice to be able to go out and get new product from you uh, without having to wait 
three or four years in between albums. Um, and you were also uh, took some did some production work with Nick Marino. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, he's been my cue player on and off for about five years, and um, he's he's really good. You know, he's uh, um, I heard some of his stuff, so I said, okay, I'm gonna put your record out on my label, and uh, you know, I produce this record and everything. So, you know, it's 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 a very uh, the music is very you know in the same vein as my stuff, you know. Uh, but you know, it's more keyboard oriented, of course. Do you see yourself d- uh, doing more and more work behind the behind the controls as a producer, or is that just really I, something? Well, I, I produce all my own stuff, so so it's it's I'm basically, you know, when I, when I don't do the guitar overdubs, I'm just a producer for for the rest of the, the the you know recording and mixing and stuff like this. So basically, you know, I mean, I would love to do that, but as, as things are right now, I don't have any. I don't have time to do anything. I, I, my time, my I simply there ain't enough hours in the day for me, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but that, that might change a little bit f- further on. You know, you know, I mean, I'm not ruling it out, of course. You know. Sure. Now you um you chose to do a cover of "Beat It" on High Impact. Was that um were you a particular fan of Michael Jackson? No, I always thought he was really good, and um, it was it was a combination of like a. Uh, you know, as a tribute, uh, a little bit, little bit tongue in cheek, but also a tribute. And uh, you know, my wife once again, she she was one that suggested it. So you know, yeah. And it was um, the, the CD Angels of Love also um, was that that was a very interesting project for you. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, that was that was my wife again. <laughs> she said you need to do acoustic albums. And I no, no, no. yeah, you do because uh, she loved not playing acoustic guitar. Sure. And I said, no, no, no. And uh, so um, I went up there in the studio and I did it a little bit. And I go, wow, I, I kind of like this. So I started, uh, you know, there was a couple of brand new compositions on there, you know. And uh, so that was that was a very interesting thing to do because it was totally different, you know, because you you you, you couldn't cut loose on the metal, you know, thing. And, sure. Uh, so it was an interesting thing, you know. Yeah, it, it was interesting to hear, you know, you, you think of you and you associate immediately with Marshalls and Fender, uh, you know, and then to, you know, sit down with an acoustic is an interesting experience. The um, the new record, Relentless, uh, coming out on the 22nd of November. First question I had, the song Look At You Now, is that you on vocals? That's me, yeah. Okay. I, I listened to it and I actually went back and pulled out the G3 live disc and I was like, it does not sound like Tim. But um, I didn't have uh, access to the liner notes, so I was trying to guess if that was you on that. So I'm glad. Yeah, to hear. yeah, it is. It, it's me singing. Uh, it's it's only one I've, I've sung really that's not bluesy, you know. So yeah, it's um, I enjoyed it. I think it came out pretty good. Yeah, I, I would certainly say the new album is uh, uh, in a very traditional Ingve, um sort of mold. But I think I think Tim kind of adds a unique, you know, for fans of bands like Ice Earth or Judas Priest can kind of uh, maybe you know, kind of cross over into your world, which is great. Um, one of the things, one of the things I, I noticed, and, and, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, you had been with DeMarzio for quite a while, and now you're you're using Seymour Duncan pickups. Was there something that led in particular to that? Yes, uh, it's a quite good story, because what happened was, um, I, you know, back in the day, you know, when everybody had Van Halen and everybody had to use these double-coil pickups, I didn't want to do that for a couple of reasons. I, a, I didn't think that, that I didn't like the sound. I didn't like the way they looked in the Stratocaster either, you know. Sure. And so I had to live with the buzz and the hum from the pickup, which I never liked, of course. And then uh, I came up with the idea that if you put the two coils on top of each other, you should be able to hum, cancel it like that. So I went to the Mars with it, and they said, okay. 
And then the pickup that came out of it, they, I said, well, yeah, but it's, it's really weak and it doesn't have any bottom end and it's, it's really, you know, quiet and it's really doesn't have all the harmonics that I want. Yeah, but that's the only way you can do it. There's no other way to do it. Oh, okay. So for about 25 years, I lived with it for, the, for the huge compromise. Sure. I figured, okay, I can't have the noise, so this I'm going to have to make compromise like this. Until Evan Scott from um, Seymour Duncan came to me and said, oh, you know, when you know you use the Morrisons, but try these. So he gave me a set of his therapy gaps, and I said, no, 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 this is not what I want. Okay, we'll make whatever you want. So for about a year, on and off, on and off, on and off, they would send me a pickup. I said, no, 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 a little more treble, uh, a little more to do the magnet a little higher, a little different Alnico magnet, uh, you know, the com- composition of the magnet has to be a different one. So the three pickups, the neck, middle, and bridge are three different pickups. They're not the same because they're tuned to where they sit in the guitar. And the, 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 the output is, not, of course, not too hot because that's not good, you know. But they have substantially more output than the old ones and have a lot more sustain. The amazing amazing uh, transparency, amazing uh, response, amazing tone, amazing power. I spent a year straight perfecting these things together with them, and they were great. So let me tell you something. Anybody that has my guitar or tried my pickups before, try these, and you're going to die and go to heaven. You're not going to believe that's the same instrument you're playing. You're not going to believe it. You're just going to go, oh, my God. Yeah, are you able to keep some of that without you know getting too technical? Does it keep a lot of the tone that that you know the Strat is famous for, but gives you just a little less of noise? Course. Of, of course, of no, no, there's no noise. Yeah, and that that's actually it, great. It, you know, it's completely this, dead quiet, dead quiet. But you see, with the old pickups, the Demarzios, I had they they were made so they were quiet, but the tonality of the pickup wasn't you know, anything near what I wanted, you know? Right. But I, I, I was led to believe that that was the only way you could get rid of the noise. So let me tell you, I, can, I can't tell you guys enough, if you hear this and you're a guitar player, you check these pickups out, you got, oh, my God, it's, it's, I'm not just saying this, you know. I mean, I, I, let me tell you something. The, um, now, do you plan on uh, doing kind of a worldwide tour for um, Relentless, or do you see yourself, I guess, in my personal caring, is do, do you find yourself coming back to the States to do any touring? We are discussing that right now. There's nothing booked solid, but um, we, we are at the beginning of the year to throughout the year, that's what we're planning to do, you know, everywhere, the States, Europe, Japan, you know, you name it. Do you um do you plan on touring with Tim on vocals or or is he of kind of unavailable? Okay, great. Of course. Excellent. No. All right. Well, um, I guess that was about all I had for you. I want to thank you again for taking the time out of your hectic schedule to talk to us. Thank you very much.
right, that was Red Devil from Perpetual Flame from Ing May J. Malmsteen featuring Tim the Ripper Owens on vocals. Uh, fans of the Ripper, uh, or people who don't necessarily recognize the name the Ripper, the Ripper was the singer for Judas Priest in Rob Halford's absence and also a former vocalist of the band Iced Earth. Uh, Tim is from the Akron area and... Um, the movie Rockstar, which starred Mark Wahlberg, is kind of roughly based on uh, his experience with Judas Priest. Uh, Tim has also got a restaurant now in uh, Akron, so it looks like kind of a hard rock cafe, but uh, for metalheads. So it looks very interesting. Might have to take a road trip. Again, I want to thank you all for joining us this time around. I want to thank Gary Hoey, Chris Caffrey, and the great Ingve J. Malmsteen for being on the show as well as... Uh, you for listening. You can visit us at www.ironcityrocks.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, YouTube, and all the social networks. So we invite you to join. Again, uh, the 2010 Iron City Rocks Pittsburgh Music Award nominations are going on now. So we invite you to vote and uh, invite your friends to vote as well. So thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>